This is Pendust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. Caught is a story about a woman whose life has mostly occurred around her. She has watched things transpire rather than acting to make them happen. But one day, something happens that upends her life and forces her to make changes and decisions. Jessica Barksdale is a professor of English at Diablo Valley College in Pleasant Hill, California, and teaches novel writing online for UCLA Extension and the Southern New Hampshire University. Her 15th novel, The Play's The Thing, and her second poetry collection, Grim Honey, are forthcoming. She lives in the Pacific Northwest with her husband. This is a work of fiction. Caught. Written by Jessica Barksdale. Read by Taylor Coan. The first time it happened, Melanie was 50 feet away as the kid spun around the blind corner, his shiny silver Mercedes drifting on two wheels, at least for a second. Sun glinted through the sudden spaces under the car. The for-sale sign in front of the Delgado's house rocked back and forth. The wind blew dried eucalyptus leaves, the edges thin as knives. She threw up her arms as the car righted itself, the leash yanking Remy, her dog. Remy whined. The kid skidded hard to a stop, the rear of his car lifting. The smell of hot brakes and tires wafted from under the car as the motor ran. What the hell? she yelled, ignoring the banging of her heart. The car inched closer, and when she was two feet away, he rolled down his window. The first thing she noted was his pimples, and then the shine of grease on his forehead. Might as well wear a sign that read hormones, she thought. He smelled like hair gel and cigarettes smoked by his friends in the back seat. Sorry, he said. Sorry? Any closer, my dog and I would have been dead. He put on a sullen face, eyes glazed and staring straight ahead. You should drive ten miles an hour on this street. It's basically one lane. Do you want to run someone over? He pushed a hand through his thick, dark hair. Then he shrugged, and for the thousandth time, Melanie marveled that the entire population hadn't been killed by teenaged boys. Her own boys hadn't managed not to kill her, and they lived in her house. I don't really want to talk to your mother, Tina, right? But I will. Slow the hell down. To his credit, he looked her in the eyes. Dark brown-eyed, white-toothed, at least two good attributes. He'd probably been an adorable toddler, staggering around the house on chubby legs, with a big smile. Poor kid. Driving was likely his only power, she thought. But still. Sorry, he said. You said that already. 
A car pulled up behind him and the driver tapped the horn. She stepped back and let him pass, Remy close at her side. Don't do it again. Melanie and Remy walked on. She kicked at crushed pine cones. Asshole, she thought. Her word for people who did things wrong. And most everyone up in the Oakland Hills did. Driving was the most obvious, the most egregious. Drivers barreling down the skinny, mountainous roads at 40 miles an hour, straddling the double yellow lines, or just ignoring them, texting and making calls and yelling at their kids. They slid through stop signs and lights, whipped around corners. They drank big cups of Starbucks coffee and held onto the wheel with slack left hands. Walkers, dog walkers, weren't much better. Letting dogs off leash, dogs that were supposedly friendly, the ones that never bite or have never done that before. Right, Melanie thought, saving Remy weakly from snapping, slavering biters. Or the walkers were just benignly oblivious, using expandable leashes, their dogs crisscrossing on the street so that it was impossible for Melanie to know which side to stay on. Then there were the ones that didn't pick up the mounds of dog shit. Piles of it everywhere. Or the ones who left the full poo bags on the street. Who did they think would clean up after them? She didn't even want to think about the bicyclists zipping down from regional parks. Toward the end of their marriage, her ex-husband Dan took up biking. A $2,000 technological marvel bike. Special shoes, fancy helmet. All that damp, smelly spandex. On weekends, he'd leave for the entire day, riding from Oakland through Berkeley into Contra Costa County and the wide-open suburbs with their trails, or at least wider streets. Or, so he said. Now half the time, Melanie had the notion of ramming bikers and flipping them up like poker chips. But instead, she was forced to follow them down the hill, looking at their ghastly ass cracks through their worn-out biking shorts. But really, no one should live up here at all. The 1991 fire hadn't taught any of them a lesson. Big houses built one after the other next to stands of drought-dry eucalyptus and now-dying Monterey pines. Empty lots let go to seed. Clumps of oily, invasive scotch broom. Budget cuts and closed fire stations. Small streets, barely big enough for the remaining fire engines. Global warming. Offshore flows, the entire hilly community, was one struck match away from extinction. Just like this neighborhood kid, people were blind to anyone but themselves. But who was she fooling? Despite the danger, she and Dan had moved to the hills for the view. For the neighbors with kids, the block parties, the nearby parks, the swim club. Now Melanie was the only one left in the big house, rolling around it like a marble in a matchbox. Back home, Melanie took off Remy's leash and gave him a dried bull's penis, marketed as a bully-stick dog chew. He trotted outside to his spot on the outdoor couch and started gnawing. Sitting down at the kitchen counter, she opened her laptop and searched the neighborhood watch list for Tina Simmons' email address. After what Melanie saw today, it was clear Tina needed a new script. What kind of advice was she giving that monster? From what Melanie had gathered at block parties... The father wasn't around and hadn't been for years. It must have been Tina who taught her son to drive like a maniac. Melanie scrolled until she found Tina's name and address. Settling onto her chair, she started typing, 
but then sat back and stared at Remy in the sun. The dog was oblivious to bad parenting and near-death experiences. How many times had Melanie's older son Robert driven while drunk? Or while on some other substance, something Melanie would only learn about years later. He'd sneak out of the house, first to run around the neighborhood with his friends, and then later to drive like an idiot with his lights off. He'd siphon gas from Melanie's and Dan's cars, sped around until he ran out, and then steal more gas from someone else. Robert and his friends destroyed the local soccer field. They had to do community service for weeks at the nearby assisted living facility. He was lucky Dan pulled a few lawyer strings to keep him out of juvenile hall. Melanie clicked on the subject field and wrote, Your son. She sat back and thought about her sons. Robert was okay now, just starting his life. Will was almost independent at 27, a firefighter recently hired to a district. Finally. All she paid for was the health insurance and his phone. A miracle, really. He hadn't learned to read until halfway through second grade, even though Melanie and Dan knew he was smart. And there were those disturbing drawings in third grade. Bombs and blood and black and red ink. She thought of all the meetings with teachers who were as exhausted as she was at her own school and with her own students and their hyperparents. Twenty-two years of it. The work was endless. There were forms, individual education plans, teacher notes to parents, phone calls, and after-school check-ins. Being a teacher hadn't made it easier to be a parent. How she and Will wrangled about homework. Both of them red-eyed, wild-haired by night's end. The pages of reading and the long essays. She remembered how he'd stalk off, slamming doors, his eyes averted when he slunk into the kitchen in the morning submitting to the daily routine, his stiff, battle-ready back as he walked out the front door, hefting his 50-pound backpack. If it hadn't been for the special education resource room and the therapists, for the whole family, Melanie might be making weekly visits to Lompoc Prison with other mothers and wives. Will probably didn't remember half of it, or that she'd been there the whole time, standing behind him. Melanie glanced back at Remy, his black eyes on her as he chewed. So much better to have a dog. You can screw up, and dogs forget. You could do your worst, and they still loved you. You could fill a bowl of water with an old garden hose. You could feed them hard pellets of food. You could lock them in a cage for four hours with only a rawhide bone and a blanket. And all was forgiven. Melanie sighed, closed down her email and close the laptop. She woke up. Something was covering her eyes. Maybe her whole head. Her body was immobilized, and the world muffled. Melanie licked her lips. The warm air around her was filled with noises, but not anything she understood. Water, she said. Water appeared, a straw on her lips. She sucked, but couldn't see who held the glass. She released the straw and sank back, but even that tiny movement was painful. The tendons on the side of her neck pulsed and burned. Each vertebrae of her spine screamed on the stiff mattress. Where? she asked. She breathed in the scent of the hospital. Bleached cotton, isopropyl alcohol, her own body, 
a kind of dead skin cast smell she remembered from when she broke her arm in the second grade. Which hospital was she in? Highland? Kaiser? Oh, God, who was with her? Robert was in Berlin fermenting political change, and Will was in the Cascades of Washington State fighting wildfires. Dan. Dan had left years ago, so... No. My dog, she thought. She tried to sit up, but tubes, wires, and her own body constrained her. A hand steadied her on the bed. He's fine, I promise, the vaguely familiar voice said. Melanie turned toward it, her, but her eyes were still covered. The world was a hazy yellow. We are taking care of him. Melanie's heart calmed. She felt someone tugging the blanket around her shoulders. As she exhaled, she focused on finding her body. Closing her eyes against the yellow, was something oily covering them? She searched for her right foot. There it was, at the end of the bed, and then her left. She tried to wiggle her toes, and she might have, but pain radiated up her legs into the center of her body, which felt achy and was a deep well of glistening maroon blood. Other than that, she felt okay from her chest to her fingertips. She moved those, too, scratching the sheet as she did. What happened? she moaned. You don't remember? A second voice asked. A slash of sun on Remy's white, fluffy fur, a click of dog tags, a pine cone, and a scrap of paper. A sound like packing tape ripping fast and hard off the cardboard. Then something she could not really describe. A bump, screaming, and her body flying. A wrench in her arm and side, a crack of spine and skull, and a hard, white flash. Then she was here. That little shit, she thought. She inhaled and held her breath, trying to see the car as it smashed into her, the hard wing of his front bumper, the bull of his grill as it rammed into her. Maybe she was inventing this part, but she imagined his wide eyes full of terror. Damn it, Melanie whispered. He didn't mean to, the first voice said. Melanie now remembered where she'd heard it before. Shh, the second voice said, clearly in charge. A nurse. Let her rest. Melanie thought of the t-shirt a man at the gym wore daily. I'll rest when I'm dead. She could hear and feel. She could move her toes. He hit me, she said to the voices. He didn't mean to, the familiar first voice repeated. I warned him, Melanie said. Didn't pay you or the law any mind, the nurse voice said. There was a pause whispers, hospital sounds in the hall. Melanie swallowed, her throat parched. Am I all right? Your doctor will be in to see you soon, the nurse moved close, adjusting things around Melanie's pillow. Machines clicked and beeped. I know what that means, Melanie said, her words coming out of her mouth in whole, slow pieces. I watch TV. I'm not paralyzed because I can move, see? She wiggled her toes again. Then she moved her fingers, and that was when she noticed the casts. My arms? The familiar voice was crying now, and if Melanie weren't in casts, she'd slap her. Who was she anyway, worrying so much about the he who hit her? Why did she care? Why was she defending the stupid, ignorant kid who didn't listen? Why was she sitting next to Melanie instead of Robert or Will? 
Where were her friends and family, her sisters, cousins? And then she knew. Tina. It's all your fault, Melanie whispered. I know, Tina sobbed back. I know. The news wasn't as bad as the television show she watched on Thursday nights would have made it. No paralysis from the waist down, no surprise brain tumor along with the concussion, or incipient MS exacerbated by stress. The show would have included emotional visits from her mother, admitting that Melanie was adopted or a child of rape. This fine episode would have had her sons calling from the tops of mountains or small submarines at the deepest ocean depths. The doctors would plead for them to get to the hospital without delay. They would hurl themselves home, bringing gifts and their hearts on platters. They would have kneeled at her bedside and forgiven her all her mothering mistakes. Possibly, her ex would have seen the errors of his ways, leaving his young bride for the true comfort of the good woman he'd spent half his life with. But Melanie only had two fractured arms. Apparently, she flung them upon impact, trying to protect herself. A concussion, scratched corneas, and random lacerations from rocks and branches, tossed as she was onto the steep hillside. They were still watching for internal bleeding. She would feel this way for a long time. According to Tina, Remy smartly dodged and avoided the collision. But he hadn't run away. He waited by Melanie's side until the paramedics came, then went placidly with Tina after the ambulance roared off. Now, according to Tina, the shitty murderous kid was dog-sitting and dog-walking and being very helpful. Stephen has a good heart, Tina said, again, but for the first time today, which was day four of Melanie's hospital stay. Melanie's arms were elevated on pillows. She had strict instructions to avoid movement which meant that the nurses came in with a bedpan when necessary. Tomorrow, though, she would be moved to a convalescent facility where she could actually convalesce. Her eye bandages would come off later in the day, and the nurses promised her a sponge bath before bed. I don't want to talk about it anymore, Melanie said. He's a good boy. What's that even mean? He stays with me. Tina's voice was almost a wail. He's good that way. Right. Melanie turned to the wall before remembering that no one could see her cry with the gauze on her eyes. Go home, she wanted to shout. Get the hell out of here. It's Stephen's father, Tina said. Melanie heard rustling tissues and the blowing of a nose. It's always the father, Melanie said, though it wasn't. On bad days, she worried she was the dark heart of her son's faults, personality quirks, and moral lapses. Sometimes, when she couldn't sleep, she ran through her litany of errors, antibiotics, hot sauna, sex, a glass of wine while pregnant, inability to say no, inclination to yell, general and persistent fatigue during their childhoods. He left us both, Tina said. Join the club, Melanie said but my boys didn't drive 40 miles an hour around blind turns on tiny roads. He didn't mean to, Tina whined. Melanie hadn't seen Tina for a couple of years, not since that last neighborhood barbecue. The afternoon breeze blew Tina's dyed red hair with brown and gray roots. Too much laughter for too little happening, a clutched glass of white wine in her hand, skin pale and brittle, and too much of it exposed in that black t-shirt. 
looking over her head for someone to... what? Come up to her? Tell her that her suspicions were right? She made every possible mistake and would continue to do so. Tina's whole life? A failure. Tina sniffed, the wet sound of her rubbing her nose. You really didn't mean to. It wasn't on purpose. More tissue, more blowing. What was the definition of mean to, anyway? There was the attempt to do something, drive fast, and the outcome. Stephen could have easily ended up at home, parked in his own garage. He might have slammed into the kitchen, kissed Tina on the cheek, and asked what was for dinner. Instead of breaking bits of Melanie's body, he might have played video games and then told his mother stories about water polo practice over dinner. He didn't mean to bang her up in the air. Melanie didn't mean to be in that exact spot at that moment, waiting to be split like kindling. I'm going to drop the charges, Melanie said, as if this plan had been approved by her lawyer and accountant. Tina stilled. What are you going to do? I'm going to sue you for your umbrella policy. That and the car insurance. Tina's gasp stabbed the air. And? You're going to take that car away. He's got to walk or get a ride. After the drugs and the soccer field incident, Robert took a bus everywhere. He found rides home from the movies and dances and football games. Girlfriends drove him home after parties. Long after Robert left for college, Will clung to rules not made for him. He never received a warning, much less a speeding ticket, his body stiff and hyper-aware in the driver's seat. Last year, when he picked her up from the SeaTac airport, Melanie patted his shoulder as he merged onto the highway. She hoped to make him feel relaxed under her cupped palm, but he remained tense, every part of him still afraid, as if he believed that at any moment he would start making his brother's mistakes. Anything else? Tina asked. Something swung in Melanie's mind, an idea she grabbed onto. I'm going to collect the money and move. Tina inhaled. Melanie surprised herself with a smile, feeling the stiffness of the pillowcase against her cheek. She flexed her foot, her hand. She felt the healed parts of her deep insides. I'm going to move. Tina breathed out and then settled against the chair. She was quiet for so long that Melanie found herself falling asleep behind the gauze. She dreamed about her sons, not the way they were now, grown up and far away, not the men they'd become with women who'd naturally taken Melanie's place, and not the long-boned, big-fisted, baby-faced teenage boys she'd fed plates and plates of food, not the boys who sat with her in the movie theaters, science fiction blasting bright on the screen, their eyes filling with the story. In her dream, Robert and Will were little again, curly-haired and wet from the bath. Their skin shiny and slick, their bodies smooth, perfect and round. She could feel them against her body, warm from the bath, wrapped in a towel, pressing their faces against her neck. They were the only reason she was here on the planet. All her failures and hopes and mistakes broke away. Her face broke into a smile that yanked on her bandages. Melanie tried to ignore the pull of tape, but her awareness came back to the room, Tina still next to her, sniffling. Thank you, Tina said. Melanie waited for the sound of her rising from the chair, heels clacking, 
the sound of Tina walking away from her responsibility. But there were only sniffles, the whiff-whiff of the tissues yanked from the box. By the time she'd been transferred to Apple Valley Convalescent Facility, Melanie's sight had returned. Though she wished it hadn't. Oh, for the gauze, she thought, gazing down her body, the sticks of her legs, the tea of her set arms. She didn't want to look in a mirror, but she felt the shape of her hair, tangled around her head, dirty, needing a dye job weeks past due. Gray roots for sure. Or maybe she'd stop all that now. Thirty years of chemicals on her scalp had been enough. The action was slower here than at the hospital, less urgent, the end for so many of the patients. Some would get better, some not. But her recovery was going to take time. The buildings fanned out over the campus, surrounded by water, trees, and well-tended lawns. She was well too acquainted with the soccer field next door, the one Robert ripped into shreds with his used infinity, along with that mad bunch with their beer cans and joints. Afterward, with the sod replaced, the green soared all the way up to Apple Valley and its smooth asphalt traffic circle and stately trees. Every day, a doctor checked on her, as did a physical therapist. She was an older woman named Anne, who barely smiled, but moved Melanie around the bed, worked her legs, her shoulders, massaged away the tense knot of headache where her skull met her neck. She thought to tell Anne about her plans to move. First, the casts would have to go, then the job and the house. But beneath the plans and details lived something else, a tingly feeling she couldn't name. I'm moving soon, Melanie told Anne during one of her last sessions. Anne looked down at her one of Melanie's cast arms in her hands. She reached up to Melanie's shoulder, feeling muscle, her fingers strong. I hate change, she said, gently lifting Melanie to a sitting position. But sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. Anne continued her work on Melanie's body. Her body was the work of so many people. They all came in for something. The squeeze of the blood pressure cuff, tight above her cast, the beep of the thermometer, the slap of a plastic food tray on the bed table. Her boys checked in. Her mother called from her own assisted living facility every other day to parse the extent of Melanie's injuries, the physical therapy treatment plan, and the disability benefits. Three friends from work arrived with plants, candy, and gossip about which teachers were retiring at the end of the term. The kids were acting up. Recess had been canceled three times last week. The big news. Someone stole the copy card. Get well notes slipped in from neighbors and old college pals living in other states and countries. But mostly it was just Tina and Melanie, rain beating the windows in the afternoon, the snores of her roommate with the two knee replacements punctuating the stale air. Tina had stopped defending her son. They spent the days watching television or reading the local newspaper. They laughed about the police blotter from Piedmont, the enclave tucked into Oakland like an ancient walled city. Dead squirrel found in yard. Man knocking on doors without permit. Officer called. And large bag discovered on sidewalk. Outside, willow branches swayed. 
Two weeks later, Melanie was sitting on the edge of her bed, her recast arms in slings. A cab was coming for her, and an attendant hired from the online service was awaiting her arrival at home. Her lawyer filed all insurance claims. The money would soon be wired into her account. Melanie had her mind on a particular real estate agent. Part of her occupational therapy was working on a computer. Mindless activity to occupy her when all she could do was tap, tap, tap. She searched for somewhere flat to live. Somewhere with big streets and sidewalks. Somewhere with dog parks. Maybe Sonoma, Marin, Napa, Mendocino, San Diego. Maui and Oahu were on the back burner. Maybe not the back burner. Why worry about her children visiting her when they haven't done so here? The neighborhood, teaching? She'd let it go as if it were a blanket, a throw, a half-completed afghan, crochet hook skittering across the floor. She'd pick up what was left of her old life and flick it, let it billow up and drift away. A young man walked down the hall, and she imagined it was a cab driver. But there he was, in the doorway. Stephen. Melanie stared, expecting to see Tina slump down the hallway after him. But he was alone. Why are you here? God, he said. His misery glowed. Melanie struggled to speak as if something were hitched on her vocal cords. A howl rested in her larynx. She wanted to yell at him about how he'd wrecked her daily routine, how he'd broken the circle of the solitary life she'd bent into place after Dan left. How dare he? They stared at each other. Melanie watched the beat of his breath in his throat. Here, help me up, she said. He plodded toward her, his mouth turned down, eyes solemn. He was so tall, all arms and legs, his body stretched out like a plank. He was a flicker away from being a man, heading off into the life that would take him away. I'm so sorry. He reached out for her arm and then flinched when he touched her cast, his hand inching toward her shoulder. Melanie leaned forward the way the physical therapist had shown her. She planted her feet and used her quads. Do you need a wheelchair? Don't want it, Melanie said. Let's get out of here before they catch me. Stephen glanced at her, his eyes wide, lips pressed together, but his step matched hers. You drive too fast, she said as they shuffled out of the room. He picked up her bag and slung it on his shoulder. It was a stupid game. I tried to see how high I could jump the car. That time you caught me, I, I swore I wouldn't do it again. But you did. My mother took away the car, he said, holding onto her so gently, she thought she could feel his pulse through his fingers. I'm not allowed to drive again for a year. How did you get here? Mom called a cab. Melanie let him steady her as they walked down the hall, past the nurses, the squat receptionist, and the other patients lined up like wheelchair soldiers in the day room. She nodded to a couple of the patients she'd gotten to know during her stay. Stephen was taller than both Will and Robert. His gait was lopy, his arms long, hands and fingers thin and pale. But he smelled like they used to. Soap, thick white patches of deodorant under each arm, undeterred hope with a layer of fear. The tang of arrogance, 
the certainty that he would never die. Walking with him down the hall began to feel familiar, so much so that she almost pressed her head against Stephen's chest, even though his thin, bony ribcage wouldn't feel the same as either of her son's. But for a stride or two, she imagined it would. Out in the air, Melanie blinked against the light and then saw the yellow cab. Remy in the back seat, his tail wagging. Stephen lowered her into the back seat, and as she sat down, Remy crawled into her lap. All set, Stephen said. Ready? Melanie nodded, surprised by tears as she put on her seatbelt. Remy licked her cheek and ear. She wiped away the tears along with his saliva, his panting, warm dog breath in her face. The cab driver started the motor. Sitting next to her was the boy who plowed her down and smashed her flat, leaving her broken. As Stephen talked to the cab driver, she thought of him so far into the future that all of this was only a memory. That lady and the dog. That lady I hit with my mom's car. The lady who left and never came back. Melanie's breath was shallow. Her broken arms ached. Here she was again, smack in the moments that change everything. She thought of Robert before leaving the house for a night out with his drunken, noisy friends. Will before he went to college. Even earlier. Dan before he got his shiny new bike and rode all the way to a new wife. The driver pulled into traffic. Remy's head was in her lap. First semester of senior year. I'm going to England to study abroad, he said. Guess you'll really be flying then, jumping across the pond, as they say, Melanie said, surprised again by the tightness in her throat. He wasn't her son leaving, but she thought of Tina, alone in her house with her tissues. Will you be there for the holidays? she asked. He shrugged. Your mom could fly over. Do Boxing Day in London. Stephen petted Remy. Maybe. Stephen told her about school. His favorite class was chemistry, and his mother was so worried all the time. He petted Remy some more, and then they looked out the window, the air blowing through his dark hair and through Remy's fluff. What was changing? Melanie wasn't sure. Her whole life? Nothing? It should feel bigger than this, wider than the small thing cracking open inside her as she sat in the back seat of the taxi cab. More than just hope, the same hope she felt in Stephen as she clutched him in the hallway. There should be a clear outcome in sight, nothing ambiguous, something to interpret and understand, a big, oh, yes. But all she knew for sure was that this pimply, gangly, and still-growing boy smashed into her. She was caught by the heavy car, tossed skyward, arms out in front of her. There she was, moving away and moving closer. Moving. This story is copyright 2015 by Jessica Barksdale. This recording is copyright 2020 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.
The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.